Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Ellie Betts. Christina is absolutely fine. Uh, I just have a little something extra to share with you this month. The excerpt I'm sharing with you today is from the self-publishing episode with Daniel Wilcox. He shares some tips for indie publishers of all levels. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Daniel Wilcox. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, God, the prep. So... (laughs) <laughs> I am uh, an independent author. I have been published since 2015. I was lucky enough to go full-time with my author business in 2019. Um, I am an international best-selling author. I am an award-nominated podcaster and um, co-founder of The Other Stories Podcast, which is 20-minute horror fiction that comes out every single Monday. Um, I am the CEO and owner of Devil's Rock Publishing, and I'm also the co-host of the Next Level Author Podcast with Sasha Black. Very nice. And nice you recently way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. You recently published a book called The Self-Publishing Blueprint. Yes. So obviously that's a guide to how to get started self-publishing. Mm-hmm. But what would you say are the biggest mistakes you see indie authors make? And are there any differences depending on if someone's at the start or in the middle or further along in their career? Yeah, sure. I think um to answer the second point first, yes, 100%. I think the obstacles and the challenges that you face when you're first publishing your book is very different to, you know, three, four years down the line after you've published a few different books. Um, but I'd say that one of the one of the biggest mistakes, so if we split this into sort of beginners and quote more advanced, um, take that how you will. Uh, for beginners, I think number one is um, a lot of people tend to pin the success of their first book as a marker for their success as a writer forever. And it's something that really, really frustrates me. And I get it because there's no there's no rule book to how to write. Nobody really teaches you the actual creative art of writing. And so people tend to, you know, say, let's just pick an avatar. You've got someone who's in their 40s and they've decided they want to write a book, but they've been wanting to do this for like 15 years. Are they a good writer? So they write the book, they put the book out, and then it's not met with the success that they'd like because it's your first book. And if you're independently publishing, you have to build an audience. You have to learn all these marketing skills and everything else to actually get your book into readers' hands. And so people... A lot of people, like 95% of people, will put out that book. It won't hit the readers that they want to, and then they'll just quit and say, oh, I can't write. That's clearly an indication of my skill as a writer. And on some on some level, that's right, because you're still a young writer in that sense. But the, the number one thing that sh- is preached in independent publishing, but should probably be magnified a bit more, is just this uh, exponential growth of putting books out, building up a backlist, using more products to bring people into your funnel, and really, most self-published authors don't hit real success until they've got a number of books behind them. What that number is sort of varies depending on your tactics and, and your um, your gusto as a writer. But that that's definitely one of them is a lot of people who will just quit at that stage. It's really, really sad to see because there are some fantastic writers out there that just don't get that recognition straight away. And the other thing for beginners as well is finding the right stage to let go of their book to give to readers. So uh, you're laughing. I'm guessing this might sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, we had a phrase during my MA, which was that a piece is never finished, it's abandoned. Uh-huh. And yeah, that rings true for me for every single thing I've ever finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that really you can, again, there's no there's no rule book to how to sit down and begin a career in writing. And a lot of people have to spend months by themselves in a room writing that book. 
and you get into your head, you wonder whether you're good enough. And the only way to find out if you are, quote, good enough is to give it to readers or to give it to someone other than you. Um, my argument would be make sure you're actually giving it to people who read what you're trying to achieve as opposed to yeah. like your next door neighbor or a family member really trying like, to find the right person to read your book because that could make or break someone. Um, yeah. But just knowing that point where I've, I've worked because I um, coach authors as well and I've worked with a lot of authors who have had their first book in progress for 10 years and that's no yeah. exaggeration and no one's ever read it and they wonder if they're good. And I'm like, there's only one way to find that out and that's to give it to someone and to get that feedback. So finding the way that works for you in which you feel comfortable and you can receive that feedback will definitely push you forward. And then um, a couple of very quick ones for people who are maybe a bit further into their writing career. One mistake that I've certainly made, um, and a, when I say mistake, it's kind of 50-50, is uh, genre switching. So I've jumped into a lot of different genres and the people that tends to find the quickest path to success are the people that stick consistently to a genre, deliver to their readers and build that reader base so that those readers consistently know what to expect. Um, I've jumped into post-apoc, into horror, into a little bit of sci-fi as well. And it's only now that I'm kind of really honing down and going, okay, horror, this is, this is the audience I'm building. Um, but also for me, it was a journey and I'm quite happy I took that journey because it allowed me to experiment to find out where I wanted to call home. So it's not always the worst thing, but people need to understand it can slow down your progress as an author. Um, another one is looking after your actual reader base. So a lot of people spend a lot of time audience building and putting out Facebook ads and recruiting new readers, but not doing a whole lot to really delight and engage the readers they already have. And it's so much easier to keep current readers than it is to recruit new readers. So the more you can look after your current audience, the stronger your fan base will be and the easier it will be to grow. Uh, and then the final one is one I'm very, very guilty of a lot of the time is uh, forgetting to market your backlist. So forgetting that those books that you spent months, years <laughs> yep. putting out um, before, you just forget about it, you just leave and then you just, you're focusing on the current book. So really trying to get that entire backlist to work and creating an ecosystem where you're marketing everything so that it works for you as one. Going back to people who are afraid to share that book they've been tinkering with forever, even though mm -hmm. that's the only way they can find out if it's any good. What would you say to someone who is absolutely cacking it at the thought of sharing their book with, you know, their dog, let alone an actual beta reader or an editor? How would you help them with that? It's difficult because obviously it's dependent on the type of person it is. But if you are really, really bricking it, ultimately that may just be your biggest hurdle. So if you can overcome that hurdle, everything gets a bit easier from there. But also a lot of why people are afraid to put their stuff out there is just writing to a lot of people can be really precious. It can be a thing so personal that it's, you know, for a lot of people, their escape. So, you know, you're out of control at work, <laughs> wild at work, um, but you don't have a lot of control in the place that you work. Um, you're looking for a place in which you can feel at home in which you can really sort of, um, I really apologize. My laptop's just the fan is going absolutely crazy. So if there's a humming in the background, that's my laptop. <laughs> Don't Good worry, I've been there. I've had it too. <laughs> it's awful. Um, but yeah, it's something that's so personal. So like it's, it's untouched and it's yours and it's pure. And the minute you give that to someone, it can dilute, it can change, you know, the meaning of what it is that you create. And I think that understanding that for someone ultimately and having those conversations with people to say like, okay, what is it? Why is, is, what is it you're doing your writing for? And then looking at what their goal is. So if your goal is to publish your book, the inevitable step is to give it to someone. And I think that we, especially as first time writers, think that in order to give it to someone, we have to perfect it 
as best we can. But really, most of the growth comes in identifying mistakes, identifying patterns. Um, I've got, uh, I run an online writers group and we've got um, a guy in there who made the really, really brave step before he even finished his first book, the first draft of, he gave 5,000 words to an editor to get feedback on and say like, okay, find my weak spots, tell me what I can extrapolate and put across the entire thing. And I think that's such a really good attitude to have because you're going to an editor who is professional. You're allowing them a sneak peek so you can identify certain things that you can then work on um, and make your first draft stronger. And it's 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 a step forward. It's a step in the right direction. And I think that it's, it is hard, but it is an inevitable step that people just have to overcome if you want to get into this business. If maybe you get to that point and you're about to hand it off to someone and you think, oh, maybe I don't want this as strongly as I think I do, pull it back. Keep it as yours. Keep it as something special. You don't have to put your book out there. But for people that do want to get into this kind of life, that is something just to inevitably try and take gently, take the criticism with a pinch of salt, and then try and keep moving forward. Because everything can be fixed. I've, I I use this analogy a, a lot, and I don't know why, because it's a crap analogy. Um, but if I was to build a car from scratch now, I have no clue what I'd do. And the first car that I built would be crap, and it probably wouldn't start. That's your first draft. But then if I you know, showed that to an engineer or a mechanic and said, okay, what have I done wrong? They can show me the things. I'm, I'm obviously not going to get it right first time. I've never built a car in my life. And so the second time, it might start, it still might not. But you make those sort of small changes until you get to a point in which you know, you're comfortable, you're ready to publish it. But it is just about getting better over time and accepting that that first draft is never going to be as nice as you want it at the end. Yeah, and I think sometimes even your first book, when you look back on it, you might go, just what why what and you, you almost uh, i hasten to say you're embarrassed by it but you find it a little bit cringeworthy <laughs> to go back through it there was there's this quote i always mention and i paraphrase it badly so i shouldn't quote it but it's one of the big entrepreneurs it's either richard branson or bill gates someone of that ilk and they always they said that if you can't look back on things you've done in the past and feel embarrassed then you haven't grown enough oh 100 percent. i love that yeah because my I've actually been looking at my first novella again recently because, like I said, that came out in 2015 and that was the first thing that I really sort of put together that was of any real size. And I haven't read it in a couple of years and I kind of want to go back to it and revamp it based off of what I've learned over the past six years. But then I'm, I'm in two minds over whether to do that because, number one, it could be a better product, but number two, it's you know a stamp of where I was in time and I don't really want to alter something that started my career. So I'm, I'm not sure where to go with that at this point. What are the minimum steps you'd recommend someone takes when launching any book, regardless of where it is in their kind of career? Minimum steps. I mean, I think um, having a reader magnet in place is always number one fundamental to me. And actually what I've started doing with newer authors is encouraging people to get the reader magnet before they finish the first book. Because you can then leverage your reader magnet to be building an audience while you're then writing that first book so that when you come to launching that book, you have at least a small group of people that are interested in buying the book and you can start to build a bit more momentum. Mm -hmm. um, and because reader magnets tend to obviously be a bit smaller than your main novel. So I think I've got a couple that are about seven and a half, ten thousand 10,000 words. They're, they're quicker writes. They're easier to put out there. They give people a, a flavor, a sample of the main book. And then, like I say, that gives you some boost so that when you actually do launch the main book, you've got some clout behind you. But I think that in, in terms of the bare minimum, you know, Publish a book, but publish it well. Make sure you've got a decent cover that is, you know, like you say, competitive among your genre. 
make sure you've actually done your research into how to write a decent blurb. Again, they can vary depending on genre. There's very different ways to write a romance blurb than there is to write a post-apocalyptic blurb. Um, nail in your keywords. So you can use programs like Publisher Rocket to research your keywords, your categories, making sure that your book's positioned in the best place possible. Because that's another thing that a lot of people get is that they'll put their book out and they'll suffer with negative reviews. And if you read the reviews carefully, most of the time, it's just that you've given the book to the wrong audience. It's not that the book sucks. It's a, for example, this wasn't so much negative review, but just in terms of sales numbers, my, my latest series, When Winter Comes, um, I originally marketed that as a horror book with a post-apocalyptic lilt. And what I've realized is it's actually a post-apocalyptic book with a horror lilt. So I've had to, I've got a new cover set up for that. I'm going to be doing some tweaks and bits and pieces, but it's finding exactly where your book should sit on the, on the shelf so that the right readers find it. Um, I mean, I'd say if you can get some ads stacked up. So um, I tend to either soft launch a book and have it go live a couple of days before the actual release so I can set up some ads or I'll set it up a pre-order. So I've got a link that I can give to places like um, e-reader news today, Robin reads, those kind of promotional sites. Um, and then if you can try and dabble with AMS, Facebook, BookBub ads, and see if you can get something rolling, see if you can, you know, start that path to, um, cost per click ads, which are, it's a bit more of an advanced game, I'd argue, but at the same time, it's good to kind of just put some stuff out and start wrapping your head around that. Um, obviously telling all your audience, seeing if you can get some news that swaps other people in your genre. And then the biggest thing you can do is move on to your next book. Yeah, I think people forget that publishing the next one is also marketing the previous one. Mm -hmm. So it is in itself a form of marketing. So if people turn around and go, I hate marketing, actually, there's a very simple solution. Yeah, right. And I think a lot of people underestimate that, particularly now with how the entertainment industry is, if you look at like Netflix and Disney Plus and like all of these sort of streaming services, everything is quick, everything's rapid. People want to know that there's more content coming. So people will be much more hesitant to jump into a book one if there's no book two than they would to jump into a book one if there are already four or five books out in that series or if the series is complete, which is why a lot of box sets do so well because readers jump in and they know that there's already the content there. They can get a full arc of the story um, and usually it's better value as well. So definitely just jump onto that next book and get that out. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about mindset already, but what would you say are the biggest mindset issues you've seen writers face? I think the main one that I face, um, so as I mentioned, I coach authors, I have sort of like one-on-one -on -one power hours. I have sort of like coaching programs and things. And, and most of the work that I seem to do is unpicking expectations around the one path to success so an example of that is over the last you know four three or four years maybe and um, the rapid release model has been very very um widely megaphoned across the self-publishing community and for people unfamiliar with that model that's essentially a model of for example you don't publish your first three books until you have them written you publish one a week or two later you publish the next one a week or two later you publish the next one and then you jump into a cycle of releasing a minimum really of once a month just to play the algorithms, keep it going and to feed readers so that they keep buying your product. And because that's worked so well for certain people, a lot of people have tried to replicate this. And I found that, you know, I was, I've, well, I kind of am such, I'm not one of those at the minute. I do write fast, but that's like a whole separate thing. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that it's not the only way to success. It's one way to success. And I've seen a lot of people who 
either have tried to make that happen and then realize that they don't write fast and therefore feel like they're failing because they're not able to keep up with these people that are like stacking books and making millions. Um, or even on the other side of that, I've worked with and around people who were rapid releases who have discovered that after a year or two, they can't keep up that pace anymore. And so it's the, the biggest mistake I, I see people making is thinking that there's this general path to success or these sort of routes that you have to take, not understanding that consistency, um, transparency, like building your brand in a way that is authentic and connects with the reader based on your genre is is really sort of the only tried and true method to keep going forward. And whatever that looks like is different for different people because me and you could write exactly the same types of books. We could have very, very similar, you know, paths in life in terms of like our personal lives, our financial income, but we're both different people. So you might, for example, be really, really effective with Facebook ads. And I, I might be really, really good at, you know, networking and going on podcasts and doing that. And so it's understanding that there's an entire pool of ways to be successful and it's picking the tactics and the strategies that work best for you. Um, which is really difficult to do when you're in a bubble and you're a writer and you're sat by yourself and the only interaction you have with other authors are on Facebook groups or in podcasts. It's really difficult for you to validate that the path you're on is right because there's no one confirming that it is. So joining communities, getting involved in things like that and trying to network with other authors is a really great way to overcome that as a barrier. Um, and then the other one um, that I'd say in terms of mindset shifts is just acting like an author. There's no, like I, it was really bizarre. I was going back through, um, cause I ran a podcast in 2016 called the story studio with uh, Luke Condor. And I went back to one of our earliest episodes and we started doing these little sort of like micro episodes of, of author advice. And the irony of this was hilarious, but one of the episodes was, uh, it was me giving a lesson on at what point you can call yourself an author, you know, perfect bounces back to this. And I don't even think I believed my own advice that I gave then, but I a hundred percent believe in the advice I was giving then now. And that's just to act like an author from the start. If you decided that you want to write a book, you're an author. Like you don't need validation from your mum, you don't need validation from your husband, your friend, your sister, whoever. If you're happy to commit to it, if you want to write, if you're ready to learn and you're eager to just up your craft and listen to people, you're an author and therefore you can act as such. Put that down as your um, Instagram profile. Like nobody will ever get their sword and dob you an author. You just have to claim it for yourself. So just do it. Yeah, it's amazing how many people preface the word author with things like beginner uh -huh. or um, upcoming, newbie. soon, yeah, mm -hmm. things like that. It's like, why do you need that differentiation? There? Yeah, because then um, you're almost saying, I'm not quite good enough for this title at the moment. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you? Yeah, good enough? I've got um, a friend who's training to be a nutritionist, and uh, she she had that with hers because she's not quite qualified yet. Um, she's like a few weeks off getting the qualification, but the amount of knowledge that she's acquired from her course means that she's already coaching people and giving them sessions. And she has a real bugbear with saying, I'm a nutritionist because she hasn't yet got that piece of paper at the end of it. But the fact is she's giving nutritional advice to people and therefore in taking on that role in acting as such, you are, you are a nutritionist. Yeah. It's exactly the same with being an author, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also a distinction between writer and author i see a lot of people put i'm a writer and they'll only put i'm an author once they're holding a book in their hands mm -hmm. yeah i'll let i'll let people take that one as they will <laughs> i'll tell people <laughs> where to go on that one one of the things you've said um i think i saw you have a video on instagram about it you said that showing up for yourself even if no one else cares is important for writers why is that because 
we are the only people we can rely on when the lights are off and the room is dark. There is, you can, you can, you know, reach out to different author groups. You can, you know, ask your family and your friends to hold you accountable. Ultimately, the only person that can make you do the work is you. So if, you know, you could surround yourself in 50 of the greatest writers who are trying to motivate you and whatnot, but if you want to just stay in bed and sleep, that's what you're going to do. So that's, it, it's just as simple as that, really. Like the one lesson that I really, really learned early on in this career is that if I wanted to make it happen, I had to make it happen. And I was working a full-time job. Um, I had a newborn son. He is still alive, thankfully. Um, I've, I've won that battle. But he, like, um, around that time, there was so much going on and I only had these small pockets in the day to get work done. And that was when I'd write. I'd get up at half five, six in the morning. I'd write for half an hour to an hour in the morning. And if I didn't do that, I really, really felt the effects of it because I'd know that it, because of me, I've delayed my progress in making my author career start. So even on the days in which it was hard, even on the days when it was tired, I was tired, when there was a thousand things to do, I I showed up and I put in the work. And, you know, thankfully over time that's paid off. Um, and I also found that, I can't remember, I definitely heard this on the podcast at some point around that time because I was doing a lot of, listening to a lot of podcasts to try and like get me in the mindset of becoming an author and, and taking this kind of life. But whoever it was basically said that because I was working my nine to five, every day I'd show up to my, my job and I'd do the work and I couldn't be too tired to do the work. I couldn't, you know, make an excuse to just sit there and do nothing. So why am I putting all of that energy into a thing that I don't want to do? Don't get me wrong. I didn't hate my job. I enjoyed my job. But why would I invest that time and give my best to that job? and then slump in the time that I had to myself. So I really took that to heart and I really, you know, took responsibility for the fact that if I wanted to write 5,000 words that week, I had to make that happen. Like my fiance at the time, she couldn't do it. My mom couldn't do it. Like it was, it's, it's just down to me. And I think that's the same for everyone. Um, and something that I think people know, but they never really think about is that if you want to do the thing, you have to put in the work to do the thing and no one else is going to do that work for you, especially in something as personal as writing. Yeah, no one's going to sit there and go, have you done any writing today? If you hit that word count, no one's going to be there to motivate you every single day. It has to come from you. No, absolutely. And it is really difficult. Don't get me wrong. Like I get how hard it is to motivate yourself and push yourself to do that, especially if you're not in the habit or, you know, you've got the whole imposter syndrome of, oh, but I'm, I'm just like dabbling. Like I'm not, this isn't, I'm not really a writer, that kind of thing. Just commit to it, give it a go and just own it. Yeah. What have you got to lose? Mm -hmm. Is that maybe a little bit of your energy? Yes. But you can get more of that. That's what caffeine is exactly. for. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned that your superpower, and I really like this, is seeing through the bullshit. <laughs> Why do you think that's helpful when you're coaching authors? Because everyone comes to me with a problem that isn't the problem they think they have. And it's really interesting. I don't know, I don't know where it comes from um, in terms of like the Gallup strengths. And I don't know if people are familiar with these, but in terms of like the, the Gallup Clifton strengths, which is it, it basically ranks your first out of 31 different strengths. It gives you a top 10 and it's basically, you should focus on those top 10 and magnifying those as opposed to trying to like strengthen all your weaknesses so that you can really sort of become powerful. Um, 
And one of the mindset ones is individualization, which is the ability to kind of recognize the individual in each person. And it's just fascinating because although, although everyone is an individual and you all have your own paths, and we've already kind of touched on this earlier in terms of like, you know, marketing your book, um, there are commonalities that transcend all of that. So things like your personal health, when it comes to finance, physical health, mental health, when it comes to your mindset around like how you approach different things, you've got your family life, you've got your work life, you've got your author life, you've got all these different factions. And people will come to me and say, um, for example, I'm really struggling to, to finish this book. And they'll think that it's because they're not putting in enough work. It's because um, they're not writing fast enough. It's all this kind of stuff. But then you pick it back and it'll, it could just be that they're going through a divorce in their personal life. And that's really creating a block for them because they've got other things that really need their attention in terms of your life. Like writing isn't an isolated practice. It's part of a greater whole. Um, it could just be that they're comparing themselves to someone else and they are writing as they should be, but you know, they're not writing as fast as their buddy because their buddy writes much faster. And that's just part of their process could be that their friend plots and these, this, this person pants and, there are all these different sort of factions, uh, factors. And most of the time I'll sit there and I'll kind of ask people to give me an idea of what it is that, you know, the problem is where they are, where they're writing, what they're trying to deal with. And it, yeah, 95% of the time, it is a case of the actual problem that they're trying to solve is about three degrees to the left. And so <laughs> I don't, I, like I said, I don't know where it comes from, but it is just, I think by listening and trying to understand this greater mechanism in which writing fits, you are able to understand or able to identify where that pain point is and, and the real problem people are having. Um, and most people just want to be heard. Most people, like I say, we live in these really sort of vacuous chambers when we write in which we're in a room, we're by ourselves. Like even now, like I'm in a room talking to you online, but I'm in a room in a house that's miles away. And so we never have those real touch points, those interactions in which, you know, someone else can say, oh, I'm feeling that too. Or, you know, that's a normal part of the writing process. So it's, yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but it's sort of like just breaking down those barriers and really trying to find what it is they're saying amongst what they think they're, they're trying to say. Yeah, I get you because I, I've seen the same thing. A lot of people say, oh, I'm having this problem. And then you look and it's like you say, because something's going on in their personal life or maybe they're not, that's the wrong genre that they're writing in and they've never considered it. Or maybe they don't know the characters well enough and they're blaming the plot. And it's all these little things that mm -hmm. people have never considered. And that fresh perspective can make a massive difference in terms of overcoming that hurdle to actually finish something. Yeah. One that I see very, very commonly, um, which I'll, I'll give as like a bonus tip from my book, um, is quite a lot of people skip that first step of researching the market when they're writing their first book, because the first book is a book that comes from the heart generally, or it comes from, yep. it's like, I've had this idea for 15 years and I want to put it into practice. Um, and so they'll just jump straight into writing the book and writing the story that they think needs to be told. And then they'll realize at the end of it, they've got this story that is fantastic but hasn't been shaped into a way to fit a certain genre and reach a certain pool of readers so a lot of the time i get people come to me without saying like oh it's not selling or i don't know where this fits and then we basically have to take that step back and go right back to the beginning and go okay well who are your competitor authors i don't know okay what genre is this going to fit in um i think fantasy all right but what type of fantasy and then it's all these questions that should have been asked that haven't been asked that then need to shape the book going forward so if you're listening to this and you're a, a new author or you're halfway through your first draft, 
my recommendation is pause <laughs> and just really try and critically consider does your book have the tropes of the genre you're trying to hit do you know where you want in the charts to fit all those kind of general position and market questions that will help you um increase your chances of actually having a successful book launch when it comes to it yeah i definitely think when people are writing from the heart they kind of begrudge the idea of doing that market research but it's like well do you begrudge the market research or do you begrudge your book not selling more mm -hmm. which you know, you're always going to have that niggling in the back of your head. Oh, if I'd done this market research up front, would the book sell better? Would I yeah. be happier with the results, etc.? So it does save you a lot of time and hassle and stress if you just do that work up front, even if you don't want to. Hundred percent. And you can always you can still tell your story. You just have to yeah. look at a couple of little touch points along the way in which you know you tick them off so the readers will be happy. Yeah, and then if you've done the market research and you still decide you want to go against that, at least you've got that knowledge and you essentially know why the book didn't do as well as it could have. Because there will be some people who do that writer. research. Yeah, because <laughs> there will be some people who go like, look, I don't want to do this research. I don't want to do this genre trope. And then they're like, why is my book not selling? And it's still a very simple answer. Mm -hmm. But at least they're more aware of what their reason's likely to be. Yes, and you can either go back and fix that book or you can just move on to the next one and take the lessons that you've learned and then treat that as your first marketable commercial book exactly so there are lots of options there loads exactly so let's dive into your writing process how do you get focused during your writing sessions i tend to try and write at the same times every day um i'm much more of a morning writer than an evening writer although that has changed over time because when i was in my old day job sometimes i had to write in the evening you just do what you need to but now that I've kind of got the luxury of a bit more time, I tend to try and get a lot of my creative work done in the morning because that's just when my brain's more switched on and fresher. Um, and then when it comes to actually writing, I generally, I, I work in Scrivener. So I, I approach the page. Um, I have a quick look at what I did the day before if I need to just to refresh my mind where it is. And then I have, for people watching on video, I have a big set of headphones that I shove on. Um, I've got a Spotify playlist I made myself, which is basically just full of sort of moody atmospheric music. And then I've got a pair of glasses that I put on. Um, and I just, most of the time, I'll set a timer for 20 minutes or so. And then I'll just close everything, focus for 20 minutes, do the work, and then surface for maybe five, 10 minutes, and then jump into the next sprint. And just keep repetitively going until I've hit the, the word counts that I'm after for that day. So it's very, um, it is very simple. And I do find that uh, there is a coffee shop that's quite local that I tend to go to a lot, which I only ever go to that coffee shop to write. So that when I sit there, my body knows that's what I'm here for mentally. This is where I switch into writing mode and I just get stuff done. Because I do find that sometimes working at home where I'm working on admin and marketing stuff as well, it can sometimes be a bit trickier just to get the, the wheels turning. But yeah, it's a lot of sort of um, just little tricks. How do you deal with distractions when they come about? Like if your phone's relentlessly ringing or someone wants your attention or there's drilling outside because they're doing roadworks or something? If it's nothing that's directly demanding my attention, I'm, I'm normally pretty good. So if there's sort of like background chatter or things, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I've actually re uh, discovered recently that I can listen to music that has lyrics while I write, which is strange for me. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting that you talk about distraction at the minute because I'm in the process of looking for a new house. So I'm getting a lot of phone calls at the minute from housing agents and you know mortgage advisors and all these different things. And... Um, the answer to that, I guess, is if it's a call that I have to take, I don't deal with it well because I, I very much like my time to go in the way that I want it to go. 
Um, so that's quite that is quite a challenge at the minute. But then if it's Facebook, Instagram, social media, all that kind of stuff, I'm pretty good at just closing them down because nothing is ever really that important. <laughs> nothing. <Yeah. laughs> Nothing's ever really come up. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. If the house isn't on fire and no one needs hospital treatment, it can wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I used to, um, when I did my early mornings, I just wouldn't touch anything social. I wouldn't have my phone with me. I'd just sit at the computer and I'd just get the thing done. Um, but yeah, it's just turning most of it off. And I know for, for some people that is hard, like social media is, can be a real distraction. And I definitely go through phases where I let it slip and then I have to pull it back. Um, but mostly, yeah, it's just shutting everything down and going, okay, this is the thing that I need to be doing right now. Yeah, I'm terrible for social media. Although I do find when I'm doing writing, particularly when I'm writing fiction, I do close everything down because I just can't concentrate with like my WhatsApp going off or Facebook or Twitter or any of them. And um, I actually do listen to music with lyrics and I didn't know people didn't. Really? I've heard it more and more lately, but I've always listened to music with lyrics in. I find mm. classical more distracting. I don't know why. Interesting. But yeah, I think you can, you just get used to what you get used to yeah it's it has to be stuff i've already listened to and that i'm familiar with Mm. so i can almost blank it out because i know what the lyrics are and stuff i'm not singing along i'm not analyzing it because i've listened to it a gazillion times but i have playlists for all of my characters for different emotions for different books and that really helps me kind of channel the energy that i'm trying to channel into that particular scene or chapter yeah i I do very similar although I'm, i'm the opposite in that respect in that I can only listen to songs that I've not listened to before because oh. if it's one that I know, I'm instantly like singing that or, or thinking about the lyrics <laughs> in my head. Yeah, for me, if it's new, it's the novelty of it. So I'm trying to listen to it and pick apart the lyrics and things. Hmm. So I find it easier to listen to the new stuff, for instance, if I'm out with a dog because then it doesn't really matter if I'm picking apart the lyrics because it's not yeah, like yeah. I'm having a conversation with a dog. Okay, sometimes I do. <laughs> <laughs> Every dog owner does it. It's not just mm-hmm. me. <laughs> they're good listeners no they're not millie's terrible no. anyway <laughs> um you knew i was gonna bring this up so i've got to do it you have this concept called deathbed dan so mm. can you tell us a little bit about deathbed dan and how it came about deathbed dan seems to be weirdly popular with people um because it's i think it's the alliterative name and the fact it's a really clever motivational tool yeah so i came across the concept um a couple of years ago um, from Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a social media marketing sort of guru, does a lot of motivational talks and talks a lot about entrepreneurship and um, productivity. And it's just, it was something that really resonated with me because, so Deathbed Dan is basically, it's a concept that if I'm sat here right now and I think ahead to myself on my deathbed, so say I'm, you know, conservatively 70, 80, whatever I make it to, um, is he going to look back on what I'm doing now and be unhappy with how i've approached today like am i gonna am i gonna be glad for the energy i've put in today you know what how is that going to reflect on on deathbed dan and so if i do have a bit of a crummy day or my energy levels are a bit low i do sit and think okay what's deathbed dan going to think about this am i working hard enough to make him proud like is this is this a thing that matters to him and i think that's the real important distinction here what it's what it's not is a tool to say just keep working, just keep overworking. What it is, is it's a tool to really think and consider about the actions that you're taking now. So sometimes rest is what you need. So 
is he saying, okay, rest now because that's going to add six years onto my life instead of taking six years off? <laughs> um, sometimes it could be that, you know, the thing that I'm worrying about isn't all that important. And, you know, five, 10 years down the line, I'm just not going to worry about it at all. So it's, it's more of a reflective tool. Um, I, like I understand that people might think it's a bit morbid to think about yourself when you're on your deathbed. But ultimately we get, we get one shot at life. And if you're not trying to turn up every day and give 100% in whatever way that looks like, then... You know, it just, to me anyway, it feels like a wasted. I know there are people that are very happy just sitting back and taking life at their own pace. That's not me. I want to get stuff done. I want to achieve things. And having that avatar hold me accountable. Again, it, com it comes back to the whole um, showing up for yourself because ultimately at that point, I'm not looking at anyone else in my life because I don't care what they think of me when I'm you know, 80. I'm looking at myself. Am I going to be happy with what I did today? Yeah, I don't think that's morbid necessarily. I think it's a really good tool and I do something similar. But I know some people do find it a little bit of an uncomfortable concept or image. I mm -hmm. was a little bit more abrupt with my version. When I taught productivity for writers a few years ago, I said to people, if you were hit by a tram tomorrow, how would people <laughs> you love feel? Would they be proud that you did everything you could to achieve your goals? Or would they feel like you'd wasted your life? And I use yeah. trams because there are a lot of trams in Nottingham. That's why. <laughs> so it's kind of a local image that would stick in someone's head a lot more. Yeah. Um, and people initially, they were quite horrified by it. And then they kind of went, oh, okay, actually, yeah, I get it. But it's getting over that shock factor of the image in the first place. But I find that fascinating as well, because there is a real, uh, we can go deep into this, or we, we can up, but there's a, there's a real sort of comfort that people have, a real reassurance that tomorrow is guaranteed. Yeah, and I agree. It's, it's just not like I've known, um, I've had friends of mine who have you know died young. I've had like family members that have, have gone for various different circumstances. And most of the time their death was a shock in some way. Like it was something that hit them suddenly or, you know, it was an accident. Um, so I think it, <laughs> for the, the fact that people are shocked at that image says a lot about how we generally per perceive life. Like we just expect that, you know, we're going to have 2.4 kids. We're going to make it up to the age of, you know, 80, whatever the average is. Think 84 maybe isn't the male average at this point. Yeah, it's mid 80s, I think. But... Yeah, yeah. Um, and so people then get very comfortable and you expect tomorrow to come. So you don't try as hard or you think like, oh, I'll try doing this tomorrow because that's a guarantee. And for me, I just, again, I don't want to get, look back on myself when I am 80 and go, oh, you just wasted all of this time. And again, I'm always conscious when I say this stuff, I don't want to like feel like I'm attacking people because this is definitely how I think. And I understand that's not how everyone thinks. Um, but I also like the immediacy of what you're saying in terms of, you know, what if it does happen tomorrow? Because even right now, I'm looking at ways in which my current work's in progress. I can find some kind of accountability partner to give them to in case I die tomorrow. <laughs> and then at least like the things that I've done can either be finished or put out or something um, because nothing is guaranteed. But I think if anything, that's a real, again, it's not morbid. It's very, very positive to think like, okay, how can I make the most of today? Because then I'll be grateful on my deathbed. Yeah, I think it does depend on your perspective as to whether or not you see it as being morbid or as being positive and uplifting. I know I probably, even when I mentioned the tram thing initially, I probably saw it as a little bit morbid, but I am much more of a positive person than I was a few years ago, and I do mm. see it as challenging myself and finding opportunities to grow. And in the diary that I track things in, it's like, what are the top five things you've achieved today? And there are some weeks where I do struggle to fill it in. And then I think back and like, what the fuck have I done this week? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, when you have those weeks, then you kind of have to reevaluate and go, okay, how can I make next week better than last week and get closer to those end goals? 
Yeah, and it and <laughs> it doesn't have to be a massive change straight away. Like I think this is one thing that people also um, struggle with is that you go from okay, maybe I am tired, sort of like sitting on the sofa and you know doing whatever you do in the evening all day. I'm just going to jump in and start doing all these things. And I think that's just as damaging as staying in the spot that you're in. But you need you really need to take like incremental slow movements in the right direction. And it's a thing that um, I got from Kevin Hart in one of the, I think it was a book or something he was uh, interviewed on. Just try and be better than you were yesterday. And that if you phrase it in that way, it doesn't have to be significantly marked. It doesn't have to be like, be double as good as you were yesterday. Because then that's like a big leap. It's just whatever you've done yesterday, see if you can be a bit better than that today and just build up those incremental changes. And then if you have a day in which, you know, you have to rest or something goes wrong, you take a couple of steps back, just start again and just build it up. And really that's just the the steadiest routes to trying to be your best self. I hate that phrase, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the one, it's the most appropriate, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can I be my best me? <laughs> yeah. And also remember that the best you now is going to be vastly different to a year ago or a mm -hmm. year in the future. Yeah, none of us know what is going to happen in the future, but as long as we're working towards something, that's what counts, right? I hope you enjoyed that little excerpt. If you're enjoying the Writer's Mindset podcast, check out our Facebook group. You can find it at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. We also have lots of new merch, as you can probably tell, because I'm covered in it. We will see you in May for our regularly scheduled episodes. Keep writing. Thank you.